Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Which brings us to tonight's second Lambda Lit Fest panel, Queer Writing Teachers from UCLA Extensions Writers Program. Our moderator is our moderator this evening is Charles Jensen. He's the author of six chapbooks of poetry and two collections, including Nanopedia, 2018. His poems have appeared in American Poetry Review, New England Review, and Prairie Schooner. He received the 2018 Zacalo Poetry Prize and a grant from the Arizona Commission on the Arts. Please join me in giving tonight's panelists a warm welcome. Hello. Um, first, I have some small print I have to read to you from the folks at Lambda Lit Fest. Hello and welcome. We did that part. Um, I am one of the steering committee members of Lambda Lit Fest, and so, uh, and Matthew was as well, and Seth. Just us, right? Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> um, and so uh, we saw all of the community proposals that came in for this week of events. It was amazing. Uh, there was a, a wealth of amazing conversation happening, really great reading. So I hope that you've been able to visit some of the other events that have happened during the week. And I also want to encourage you to see Patrice Colors in West Hollywood on Sunday at 6 p.m. It's a live recording of the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Um, don't miss that. Um, sponsors for this event include the California Arts Council, the City of Los Angeles Department of Cultural Affairs, the City of West Hollywood, WeHo Arts Program, the City of West Hollywood, UCLA Extension Writers Program, and the Los Angeles Blade. Um, thank you, everybody. We couldn't do this without you. You are the best. <laughs> In meters. If, if you would like to uh, donate money to Lambda Lit Fest, text 41444 and type LitFest18. So let's talk about the panel. Um, so all of these people teach in the UCLA Extension Writers Program. There are some brochures here if you're interested in learning more. Um, fun fact, Natasha Dion is also one of our teachers teaching right now. I'm very lucky that I get to work with all of these wonderful people. Um, they are thoughtful teachers, insightful teachers, radically empathetic teachers, and innovative teachers. And so when we were thinking about what it means to teach while queer, these were four people that I really wanted to bring into this conversation to hear more about their experiences in the classroom as um, amazing writers, amazing teachers, and amazing queer people. Um, so I'm going to introduce them all briefly, and then we'll do some brief readings from each person. Uh, I've asked them to choose something that they think best represents uh, their own relationship to queerness or something queer about themselves uh, to give us a window into that part before we dive into teaching. 
Noelle Alumit is the author of the no novels Letters to Montgomery Clift and the Los Angeles Times bestseller Talking to the Moon. Mr. Alumit's work has been published in Mr. Alumit. <laughs> Noelle's work has been published in USA Today, The Advocate, The Huffington Post, and others. We're on a first name basis. <laughs> Antonia Crane is the author of the memoir Spent and senior editor of the Citron Review and Word Riot. Antonia's writing has appeared in the New York Times, Playboy, CNN.com, Cosmopolitan Magazine, The Rumpus, Salon, and The Heroine Chronicles, among many others. Seth Fisher is an editor for Rare Bird Lit, Stillhouse Press, and individual clients who went on to publish at Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Seth was a contributing editor at The Rumpus, and his writing has appeared in Guernica, Best Sex Writing, and was listed as notable in the Best American Essays. Matthew Rodriguez is a contributing editor for the anthology Modern Loss, Candid Conversations About Grief. Matthew is a staff writer at Into, an LGBTQ digital magazine, as well as an essayist whose work has appeared in Slate, The Village Voice, and Mike. All right, so that's these people. I promised you amazing. I delivered. Um, so, Noel, could you start us off with the readings? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having this panel and um, to be talking about um, our work as writers. Uh, this is from Talking to the Moon, um, and it's the story of a novel of a family who had been, um, how they deal with uh, the aftermath of a hate crime. And in this particular scene, um, two boyfriends, uh, the son of the father who'd um, been brutalized is with his boyfriend, Michael. You're beautiful, he said. Michael knew this phrase, men said this to him. He liked it when men said this to him. He made sure his hair was properly conditioned, his skin properly moisturized, his nails properly manicured, his chest exactly seven inches larger than his waist. He read in the magazine that is the proper proportion of an ideal torso. He exercised, dieted, made sure to keep those scheduled appointments at the salon so he could fit into that category of men termed beautiful. No one would ever mistake him as a boy from a farm. You really are beautiful. I'm flattered you are out with me. I'm really happy you said you would go out with me, Emerson said to Michael. If this were Taiwan, Michael thought, someone who looked like Emerson would have his pick of guys. Michael knew he was good looking, even very good looking, but there were far more attractive men than he in Taiwan. If this were Taiwan, Emerson would be with someone taller, someone more educated, someone more wealthy. He would be a pearl, not someone like me, Michael thought. In Taiwan, Emerson would not be working for a company who needed money. His looks alone would have conditioned him to be better than what he was. Michael also knew that Oriental Americans never saw themselves this way. Oriental men in America had no concept of who they were and certainly how attractive they may be. For all of the Oriental Americans he came across, for all their highfalutin ways, they had no concept of themselves. Michael viewed them with sadness, really. What it must be like to grow up in a country where no one looked like you, to watch television where the heroes were not you, where all the beauty looked nothing like you. You, handsome, Michael said. He watched Emerson's face go blank. You, handsome, you look like star. Emerson's face remained blank. 
He didn't know Michael Thought. He didn't know how good looking he was, even though Emerson looked like Andy Lau, one of the most famous, most handsome men in Asia. He did not grasp his appeal. You do. You look like star. He watched Emerson's brown skin reach a tinge of red. Emerson laughed, brushing the hair out of his face, shaking his head, and laughed some more. Emerson threw back his head, still laughing, and Michael saw a glint of silver in the back of his mouth. Why you laugh? <laughs> no one ever said that to me before. No one ever said I look like a star. Michael laughed too, because he'd never said that to anyone else either. For a moment, he stopped, struck with irony. Here in Los Angeles, no one thought of Emerson as a star or even an actor. He was ordinary here. Thank you. So I think I just changed my mind at the last minute about what to read after hearing Charlie reminding us what we were supposed to read. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I'm going to read um, the end of an essay I'm working on um, about being bi um, and what happened after coming out as bi. Um, this is yeah. There's too much queerness. <laughs> push it out. Just push it away. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Perfect. Um, and uh, you know, there's a whole thing where there was a Halloween night where I almost hooked up with a guy dressed like Mario from Mario Brothers, and he, uh, <laughs> and then he got in a car accident driving me home the next morning, and we had to sit in the street, and, th and that didn't work out. And then, um, <laughs> yeah, and then I, I met a woman uh, a little bit later, and um, she was a preacher's daughter, and that didn't work out. And, <laughs> and then um, I, uh, um, I'm gonna embarrass my current partner right now a little and read a little bit about her happened a couple of years later um, so but this is after there's a lot that happened in this essay where I, I dealt with a lot of kind of more serious um, trauma from both the straight and the gay community as a, a part of being bi years later I started dating a phenomenal woman named Ashley in Los Angeles <laughs> One day, we were walking down Sunset on the way to get deep dish pizza. We'd only started seeing each other a few months before. A first date by the beach led to canoodling in her car in an abandoned Barnes and Noble parking lot until 3 a.m. As we walked, she grabbed my hand. It felt warm and all the muscles were just the right amount of soft. Everything about her glowed. I made myself grab her hand back, but my shoulders jumped up to around my ears. The muscles in my neck stiffened and my eyes darted around like I was a trapped animal. Barnes and Nobles had been okay because no one was around, but this was different. There were hundreds of people, people with mohawks and businessmen in pinstripe suits and people wearing ironic elbow patch jackets. It took everything in me not to pull my hand away and yell, what in the hell are you doing? Do you wanna get us killed? I didn't say that because I knew the reaction made zero sense. She is a woman and I am a man and we are on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, California, USA in 2013. Still, I opened the door for her so I could use it as an excuse to disengage. I wondered what I was even afraid of. I wondered what was wrong with me. There is still that voice in my head telling me what I was supposed to feel then. I was supposed to feel happy in the moment to not allow the weight of the past to change how I expressed my love in the present. 
What I am supposed to feel is almost never what I actually feel. So I am left in the end with the only real choice I have left, whether or not to keep trying to control how I feel. I understood that then that for me, there was a difference in the origin of choice and the origin of control, a difference I'd failed to understand with any of the people I'd hooked up with since coming out. Choice was born of options. Control was born of fear. Like many people with an identity that exists in the shadows of a binary, people the world tries to make disappear to keep its binaries alive, I've been shaped by fear just as much as I've been shaped by love. It was just as much a part of who I was as the shape of my nose and the weird breathiness of my laugh. For me, at least, it's not, as has been said so often, fear that I needed to be afraid of, but rather trying to hide that fear. I told Ashley I was afraid, convinced it would scare her away, but I told her anyway, the whole thing. She texted me back the next day. How do you follow that? <laughs> Beautiful stories. And um, I love teaching at UCLA Extension. It's a really exciting and innovative and heartwarming and fun and super challenging experience. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, Growing up uh, as a high femme, bisexual, you're not supposed to exist. You just, you don't exist. And um, being, that was reinforced my whole life until I um, became a sex worker. And then I was surrounded by high femme bisexuals. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially right now, as people like Stormy Daniels are coming out, I say cancel all non-disclosure agreements and everyone come out. And um, sex work is a, a thing that I think is intrinsically queer as well. So I'm reading something that um, actually is uh, pu was published in Playboy a while ago, but I kind of massaged it around. It's just a little tiny, tiny excerpt. Can everybody hear okay? If 2010 was the year I pegged a dozen Marines, this year <laughs> will be the year <laughs> women squirt. Female ejaculation is not an unobtainable fantasy. With patience and finesse, anyone can do it. Many studies have championed the female orgasm and its benefits. Findings suggest that orgasms not only make us smarter, but they reduce our risk of breast cancer, lengthen our lives, boost our immune systems, and even prevent heart disease. But at the end of the day, it comes down to good sportsmanship. Like tennis, the only way to get better at making a woman squirt is to practice your serve again and again until it's a beautiful down-the-line slice with topspin, speed, and grace. I first learned about female ejaculation at a clinic in Sherman Oaks, where I drew the blood of porn performers so they could stay on the payroll. One sweltering morning after James Dean and Stoya left with their HIV-negative test results, a sly brunette walked in. From her paperwork, I knew she was called Ashley. <laughs> <Shh>. <laughs> Ashley handed me her urine sample and eyeballed my cleavage, then sat down in my plastic orange chair while I secured a thick red tourniquet around her slim upper arm. I asked her if she'd ever passed out while giving blood. She shook her head of damaged, wavy curls and gave me a look that reminded me of an extra stoned Juliette Lewis, if Juliette Lewis smoked heroin and had neck tattoos. I commented on her juicy veins while we watched the clear plastic vials blacken with her blood. That's when she started chatting me up about doing a show tomorrow night. What kind of show, I asked. She looked at me intently. She described the couple she saw on the reg for cash 
and how this time they wanted to switch up their routine. And they asked her to bring another girl, which is why she offered me the gig. The wife Susan's an ejaculator, Ashley said. So it's for her, I asked. Not exactly, she said. How many times does she ejaculate? For about two hours. She told me that for the show, we would be paid 400 bucks each, twice a week's wage at the clinic where I worked part-time. We sex workers always sense one another. The air in the room changes with a porn actor's twinkling gaze. A flash, a wild smile that is more hungry than happy, and a sizzle through space sway of the hips, and more sensual heat, prowess, and erotic intelligence than a single person should be allowed. She must have smelled Hustler DNA, beneath my maroon scrubs and blue converse, while I drew her blood and siphoned her piss. I should tell you, I was a few months out of the lap dancing clubs. I quit back in San Francisco and recently moved to Los Angeles, hoping to leave hand jobbing and all my spandex remnants behind. But draining Ashley's bodily fluids were a gateway drug, reminding me of what I missed, the hit of dancing naked, stoking the desire of strangers, being held, wanted, and making fast, painless cash. I took the purple vials of her blood, placed them in the spinner, and labeled her urine, and decided I wanted to be naked with Ashley. Hi. Hi. Um, so at UCLA Extension, I teach writing the think piece, everyone's like least favorite thing to read. <laughs> so I'm going to read a think piece, and you're all trapped, and you don't have the option to click or not. Um, <laughs> This is about Cameron Michaels and a contestant on RuPaul's Drag Race season 10. The first time I saw Cameron Michaels out of drag, I rolled my eyes. Once we had met all of the season 10 queens in drag, outlets, outlets began to scour their Instagrams and other forms of social media to gather intel about the 14 queens set to dominate our conversations for the next few months. Within a few hours, the headlines had emerged. Cameron Michaels was the thirst trap of season 10. My feelings were mixed. On the one hand, as many drag performers have intimated ad nauseum, dating as a drag queen can be hard. Misogyny, internalized homophobia, and femphobia are all too common among gay men. Those just a preference gays, yeah, that extends to drag queens too. Some won't date them, some won't fuck them. So seeing thirst for any drag queen was, in some way, a triumph. But Cameron Michaels seemed to be a caveat. It's not hard to see what most people would find attractive about Michaels. His jaw could cut glass, he's covered in tattoos, he has half a dozen abs, and his butt is, well, anyone could appreciate it. <laughs> in many ways, in him, I saw my inverse, in my inverse. Almost everything about him, down to his white skin, was something that most LGBTQ men could appreciate. And for years, my own body was a site of contention. Hell, a potential beau had even once told me in bed that he had fallen in love with me, but couldn't date someone with my body type. By thirsting so hard over Cameron and promoting that thirst in several out online articles, I saw masculinity being celebrated and femininity being further devalued. There was a split between Cameron Michaels, the character, and Dane Young, the person, with Dane getting clear preference. Thirst for Cameron Michaels in many ways reified and buttressed long-held pervasive ideas in the queer community that white buff masculine men were the pinnacle and that everyone was simply fat that needed to be cut off the meat. For weeks, Michael said nothing to change my mind. Her screen time was scant and with no face to camera and barely a, zing to, a zinger to remember. Later, Ms. Cracker revealed in her YouTube show, Review with a Jew, that Cameron had fewer moments on screen because she refused to talk shit on other contestants. Mm. But with almost none of her personality being shown, something rose to fill the void, my own prior feelings about her. 
During the season's sixth episode, glimmers of personality emerged when Michael showed vulnerability with her fellow contestants and spoke about her history with drag. In the episode, she confessed that she began weightlifting while in a relationship with a bodybuilder and that when she returned to drag, her sisters had rejected her, claiming that she couldn't do drag with her boy body. When Cameron's chiseled veneer began to crack, I began to see someone who, like me, had a body that was under constant pressure to look a certain way. Now, as a fat, positive activist who believes that big is beautiful and knows that men of size, especially men of size and color, face innumerable barriers to being considered beautiful by the white LGBTQ community at large, I wouldn't say that Cameron str Cameron's struggles with his body equate to those of a fat queer person, but Cameron's past bodily issues serve as a reminder of the innate problems of having a queer body in America, and somehow he became a queen I could relate to. Uh, during RuPaul's Drag Con, I sat front row as Michaels mm -hmm. talked about being an only child and escaping in video games and idolizing strong, kick-ass women in Tekken 2 and Resident Evil. He talked about the ways he incorporated those strong women, many of whom are both simultaneously hyper-feminine and hyper-masculine into his own drag persona. This week's Maxi Challenge saw the girls compete in an acting challenge called Breast World, and during the untucked afterward, Michaels broke down upon the prospect that she would have to lip sync for her life and go home. I'm just like a lot like my dad, and he never showed any weak emotions, Michael says, as she begins to cry to Eureka, adding that she still refuses to process her father's death five years ago. I think emotions are weak. They're just so you, they're, they're just, they don't do anything for you, so I don't deal with them. She added, moments of weakness are not something that I like to share with others. There's something ironic about watching a man dressed head to toe in 80-year-old lady drag, letting, you, letting out a single mascara-infused tear saying that he's afraid to be weak. But it was at that moment that Cameron's true complexity shone through. When I had first decided I would be annoyed by Cameron, I'd only seen in her the masculinity that everyone cherished. But as she began to demonstrate on the show, even queens who embrace their femininity tuck their dick and don a dress struggle with toxic masculinity. Um, I'll just go to the end for time. Uh, okay. Of course, none of this is Cameron Michael's fault. I know the power of the selfie for those who, like me, struggle with self-love, and though I knew that most people's Instagrams are a way to work through their own insecurities, I was unwilling to extend Cameron Michaels that same empathy because his muscular build had put me in my feelings. I projected my own dislike for chiseled queens who amass queer cultural capital and capture thirst onto him. I mean, by now we know the type, right? They're the Anthony Porofskys, the Gus Kenworthys, the Matt Bomers. As Oscar Wilde is famous for saying, beauty, quote, makes princes of those who have it. And Cameron Michaels was another reminder of this queer feudal monarchy we live under. Looking at someone who is traditionally masculine, it's easy to assume that their journey with masculinity is complete. And that's what I had assumed about Michaels. But I began to feel kinship with her when I recognized that the same hurt that toxic, toxic masculinity has caused me still hurts her too. We may have bodies at opposite ends of the spectrum, and I may not benefit socially from mine, but I can certainly appreciate that we are both struggling with negotiating the masculinity and femininity inherent in all of us. We both have the scars of a cultural battle inscribed on our bodies. Nobody clicked away. <laughs> Share. <laughs> Share and subscribe. Uh, so my first question for our panelists is, as a queer teacher, what's the most important pedagogical tool that you use in the classroom? And Matthew, let's start with you because I think it ties really closely to what you just read. Does it? I mean. <laughs> do you remember what we said? I do, I do. I just, I think the word pedagogical like tripped me up. Yeah, it was like a $10 word and I only have a buck 50 on me. But um, the, so I think what, one thing that's really important, so I, so like I said, I teach writing with think piece and one of the things that I talk about when you write a line is that you kind of have to lead with who you are. And I say that to my students and, and I actually hated in, in 
undergrad and graduate school when teachers would assign their own work. But I was like, no, for this class, I have to do it once. <laughs> it's like, you just have to like understand who I'm, where I'm coming from so that I can ask you to do that for me. So I kind of modeled that with my students and was like, hey, I'm writing as like a queer, brown, fat person who is totally upfront about those identities. And I'm gonna ask you to be similarly vulnerable, right? Because if you're not modeling vulnerability, how can you ask it of other people? You know, like you can't, you can never ask someone to share something with you if you don't open up with them first. And I came out and, and you know, it's not just only about coming out as queer, like in my first class, I bombarded them. I was like, I'll come out about anything. Like I'm diabetic, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. I've never seen angels in America. Like we come out about things all the time. So it's like, I will just come out about anything about myself as a, as a tool to like induce vulnerability <laughs> in a way from other people, you know? those disclosures are really powerful and not common in yeah. people's day-to-day -day lives and in the classroom it can be really really powerful mm -hmm. yeah yeah are you going to go down the line because sure. we're going to talk to each other right yeah so I, I i you were in my classroom once and i yeah i think that we have a really similar tissue style actually it was funny when he came to visit my class he said oh have you read vivian gornick's his situation in the story have you read Anne Lamont? She first draft. I was like, yeah. They were all like, yes, yes. <laughs> we have a lot in common. We spoke the same language. Um, I teach intermediate essay right now and essay and memoir. Um, but right now it's intermediate essay. And it's my favorite thing to teach because I teach essay as a revolutionary tool for underserved voices. And particularly what I bring to the table is um, I, I require a reading that is um, reading from a high femme queer sex work voice. So I make them read Lorelei Lee's uh, Once You Have Done Pornography. They read a lot of Roxane Gay, um, who deals a lot directly with uh, sexuality. And she has a wonderful uh, book about a lesbian relationship in Difficult Loves. Um, I assign them Jill Soloway, uh, Courtney Cox's asshole. Yes, fans love it. Not everybody knows it. It's a mess, but it's a great essay. It's voice. Voice is everything, like lighting. Um, Richard Rodriguez, late Victorians. Uh, Jody Angel, you only get letters from jail. Um, I make them watch Ron Athey and Zachary Jecker <laughs> and just and um, Maggie Nelson Argonauts um, and uh, I mean even more interesting texts we revisit that people that just change language like um, Arigu Lucy Arigure, Adrian Rich, um, yeah. uh, James Baldwin of course and just the voices the queer uh, people of color and voices that are underserved but I, I definitely bring like a sex work voice into the room and confront people with those conversations about sexuality. And to me, because to me, essay as a revolutionary tool is all about being completely embodied. And, and I believe that sex work is intrinsically queer. Um, and, and so I, I confront that in the room of that intrinsically queer space of female sexuality and um, transactional relations um, as being a woman in society, especially right now, it's so important so that my pedagogical tool also, um, also I wanna say something to the men, if there are any in the room. Um, when men do take my class, um, my project with them is, well, my project with everyone is radical interiority and empathy. Um, my project particularly with men is vulnerability. And the men that come into my class and wanna argue with me, they are jelly by the end of my class. <laughs> <laughs> and <they're, laughs> they just turn to jelly, it's amazing. It's so great. <laughs> Can we make every man take your class? <laughs> yes, please, bring him. Bring it. 
I, I just want to echo because yeah. I, I, one thing I say on my first day is like I, ha I had my students read Philip Lopate's Introduction to Art of the mm -hmm. Personal Essay. And then I say, like, this is the last straight white man you're going to read in this class. Yes, exactly. Because I, I was like, you have to know this. And then afterwards, mm -hmm. like, you can, you, once you know this, you just don't have to, have to read them ever again. And it's one paragraph. Right. It's like just a little bit, yeah. It's um, about marginalized voices, turning up the volume on marginalized totally. voices. Totally. Yeah. That's and, I, and, I, and, I, and I say that to them because I'm like. <laughs> We're like split in half. <laughs> I, think, I think of Think Pieces as like an identity based response to the news because the news is filtered through the voice of the straight white man, which is considered neutral. In America, in, in American media, whatever, blah blah. blah. <laughs> so I was like, "You're not going to read. You're only going to read people who are talking about their disability status, their race, their gender, mm -hmm. their X Y Z identity, and sexual assault, and sexual, yeah, <laughs> and sex work. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I teach fiction. I mean, I've always taught fiction, and um, inevitably we'll start talking about conflict, right? What you know, you have to have conflict in your in your stories, and something will come out is. Um, you know, uh, a person versus themselves, and inevitably, oh, the gay person, you know, <laughs> the struggle, the gay person, you know, having to struggle with themselves, and then we says, you know, the person versus society, we're like, oh, obviously the gay person, you know, in, in a straight world, and so we, so in that, we, we, we will we'll bring that out, but it is the importance of voice, and I, I will say that I do teach specifically in downtown, the reason why I teach in downtown as opposed to Westwood, is because I do appreciate, I guess, um, more of an east side, um, aesthetic, um, which is very different than Westwood, which is mm -hmm. fine, which is terrific and wonderful and amazing. Um, even before we were teaching in downtown, I was teaching, we were, um, Extension used to be taught at the Occidental ca uh, Campus mm -hmm. in Eagle Rock. So it, w it was, you know, so the diversity was really, really important. And the text that I will use um, every single year is Best American Short Stories, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's a very diverse collection, usually. Um, diverse in race, but um, I can't recall ever like pulling out read this gay short story. Like, mm -hmm. It's like there's never like a gay short story in Best American Short Stories, which is always shocking to me. You know. Can I ask which one do you usually recommend? You know, which? well, I use I use the one that's out that year. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'll use. So if I were teaching this year, I'd use Roxanne Gay's. I haven't read Roxanne <coughs> Gay's. I'm, I'm hoping to chosen a clear piece on that. But but every single year there'll be. You know, they'll, they'll be a diverse, it, because I think usually the editors try to be as diverse as possible. You know, they have women, they'll have people of color, you know, but they're, they're not having a lot of queer voices in Best American Short Stories, which is really mm -hmm. interesting to me, you know. Sure. So to be able to uh, to hone that voice and, um, and because we do talk about the importance of voice, you know, and I think, you know, um, if you read, one, I, I try to, um, be as queer friendly as possible. If you read my my, my bio at UCLA Extension, it's like he wrote for the Advocate. You know, <laughs> you, you know, won the Stonewall Book Award. You know, so that I try to say, <laughs> try to say, you know, you know, I hope like even like even like even when I, I chose my my bio and my pick, I was like, okay, so if you see my pick, on set, you'll see that I'm an Asian dude, right? So you'll see that hopefully like people of color, and it is, and usually my classes are pretty split, like people of color and white people. You know, and then, um, and so I try to make sure that's like, oh, well, I'm also queer on top of that. So you, you'll know that when you hit this class that, and people have said I chose your class specifically because of either how you look or because of the material that you write, you know, so being able to have that diversity. So thank you, Charles, for making sure that that's represented in the faculty and the, and the teachers at Extension. And so, um, 
It's funny you talk about pedagogy because I thought, well, theoretically, it should be andragogy because those are teaching for adults. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, andragogy is teaching for adults. A fifteen dollar so, word. You know, that's a fifteen dollar yeah. word. I learned that because he used to work at a USC Rossier School of Education, and so, and and that is uh, USC. You know, I know we don't talk about that school. Oh, we don't talk about that school. God. We don't talk about that school. We don't talk about that school. But we, but since UCLA Extension does, um, what I love about Extension too is that. It is adults, and that people who are, you know, who've been out of school for a while, I, I find actually really, you know, um, they don't have to go take the GRE to take the class. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, which can turn a lot of people, and they're also at a different point in their lives where they really want to tell stories. And I think also at that age, usually they're older, you know, that they, they, they I think they're also willing to say things that, they're, that they hadn't been able to say when they were undergrads, for example. So um, I think sometimes that can lead our classrooms to be. A collision of diversity yeah. that um, that presents unique opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, Steph, you wanna? Oh yeah. I, well, were you getting to the next question? No, I wanna. No, oh, shield this one and then we'll. <laughs> well, I I think that the queerest pedagogical tool that I know is listening. Um, and so when I start my classes, I usually spend at least. Well, first of all, I put you know lambda on there so people know. Um, but I spend at least half the first class just listening to the students talk about what they are interested in, what mm -hmm. they want to write, what they want to do. And the reason for that, I think, is that um, there's a lot of stories that get shut down by writing teachers mm -hmm. um, uh, because the, because writers writing teachers aren't listening. You know, there, there's a lot of writing teachers who are devoted to this kind of minimalist Raymond Carver project. And by not listening, <laughs> and by not listening, um, you know, there's, you, you lose like 80% of the world and the queer, almost the entire queer world. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know if that's technically a pedagogical tool, but I think listening is the most important thing you can do as a teacher. Super important. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's go back to um, special challenges that arise when you have an open enrollment scenario. Oh. And anyone can walk in the door, <laughs> and they all do, and they end up in the same classroom. Um, when has your queerness presented a special opportunity to you as an educator, and how did you get through it? Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Well, I have two. I have one short story and a longer one. Okay. So I want to talk about an opportunity that happened. Um, a woman took my class, an older woman. I have a lot of range in my class. Everything from um, a young 20-year-old uh, refugee from Pakistan to an 85-year-old Latino gentleman who was raised in Texas as a coal miner, and so and everything in between. Okay, so there's the setting of that's UCLA Extension in a nutshell. <laughs> um, and a woman was very religious in my class and her story was about like in a, re a religious she was going to write for a christian magazine and it was very very religious and um also this was at the height of sesta fasta and i was marching in the street and basically organizing an international whores day march and you know and she was a sex trafficking ad, 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 um, a sex trafficking fighter and it was just like you could not choose a person on the planet who was more diametrically opposed to like everything and um whew, so what happened was um, we had a one-on-one, -on -one and she was very eager. She was a very eager writer, and she was had a, a story that was pretty much pretty well crafted and done. And we 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 faced off, 
And I literally went through every line with her, and we had just an amazing time. We had an amazing, she's a hardworking writer, and I helped her craft a story, and she was really engaged as a writer in the room, and she read the work, and she showed up, and she was actually a model student. And she came to uh, Pasadena Lit Fest and went, saw my reading, which was very you know, sexually explicit. <laughs> Huge surprise. Um, and, and it was a really inspiring interaction because um, what I'm used to is that being a partition between people. I mean, not, a, not in, the, in my family, like in my family and everywhere in the world, but not in the classroom. Like it doesn't have to be that way. And then another story, can I share a tiny sure. story? So my favorite thing to teach is the epistolary essay, and it has to do with standing in another person's suffering, standing in a stranger's suffering, and answering to their problem. I had a class, um, and it was like a room full of people, I just told you this. Yeah. They hated each other, they hated me, they didn't show up, they were <coughs> flaky. I would come home crying, being like, oh my god, teaching is so hard. <laughs> and then like the sixth <laughs> class, I was like, screw it, I'm going to teach the epistolary essay, it's my yeah. favorite lecture, I'm just going to balls out. I'm just going to jam out with my clam out. And I'm just like, and six people show up. And I teach like how to stand in radical empathy. And I teach my sermon on the mount uh, lecture. And it's a, it's a Cheryl Strait. It has to do with the advice column. And it has to do with they have to write about their hero, who's their hero and why. And they choose each other's questions blindly. They write a question to their hero blindly. And they answer each other's questions blindly in the room. And by the time that the question answers answered the stranger in the room's question, they read the question and the answer, and everyone was crying. And it brought the room, like it just closed the distance in the room. And it was just such a magical experience, and it was so inspiring. And I've also had, by the way, that lecture bomb completely. <laughs> I've been, like, I thought they were going to throw rocks at me. Like, I've had that lecture bomb completely, but in that room, it was so... It was, it, it was life-changing. So that was a really inspiring moment where I was just like, all is lost moment. <laughs> and it just completely turned around. I mean, um, I'm, I keep changing my mind at the last minute, sorry. <laughs> but, um, I mean, so at, at extension, I teach editing. Um, which is a little different than teaching writing, where I teach, which I teach elsewhere. Um, and I was teaching this recently when the AP announced that they was an acceptable pronoun for a, uh, a single person. Um, and people in my class, I think there's something about editor brain. Okay. They could not make that adjustment. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I... Ha, you know, and and it actually turned into a moment where I I, um, I encouraged them all to think from a, a trans person's perspective um, in that moment, um, and almost all of them by the end of the class were on board with they, um, and they they understood it, and and that was a really powerful moment um, for the most part, except for the one person who just wouldn't. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that was a, a little bit of a, a challenge that was, um, that, that I overcame. Another one was I, um, in, in another place, not UCLA Extension, um, I had a student uh, try to mansplain writing women characters to a woman. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> so terrible. And, and he uh, and he uh, he explained that he knew this because he had just moved in with his girlfriend. <laughs> as, as the father of daughters. <laughs> but actually, I mean, that moment worked out as well because that woman was awesome. And she just shut him down, but in a really respectful way. But he knew he had messed up, um, and so you know that was that was a it was a good moment. And that's another one where sometimes the best thing you can do as a teacher is not say anything, and let the other students hash um, it out. Yeah, yeah hash it, it out, out on the dance floor. <laughs> well, I do have to say, I, I mean, one of the reasons why I like teaching ECI extensions is the students are on the whole, pretty awesome. I mean, they really are. I mean, really just, they're pretty awesome. They're pretty open-minded. They're, again, um, they're usually, at least the classes I have, they're, they're usually working professionals, you know, so they've been out in the world and they have they have interesting points of view and things to say, you know, um, and I, I try my best to make sure that class is safe, that people can say what they, they want to say and do what they need to do. Um, I do say, I do think actually I, maybe one of the reasons I don't get crazes praises is crazies is because because of my bio because I say you know this is what I've written this is what I've gotten this is who I am in the world you know so I guess if you're if you're looking to be sort of that that radical that um, really conservative Christian maybe I'm not the right teacher for you there are lots of teachers out there for you to choose from but I will also say that um, you know I've taken extension classes and one of my um, best readers is this conservative Republican Mormon woman who, who is so incredibly open-minded and she actually gets my voice as this queer person, you know, queer, Filipino person. So um, it's, it's incredible the students who, who come by and um, who, who have a wealth of knowledge and what they have, what they have to say. There's, there's this idea that I always return to when I'm talking about writing, and then I also employ it in my class, which is that when you're a writer, a lot of writing is deciding how much of yourself to show. So when I read Antonia, who is telling so many details about her life, I still know that there's things that she's not bringing to the table, obviously, right? So people will read her and be like, oh, wow, she really puts it all out there. I'm like, there's a lot that we don't know about her life. And so one of the things that I... When I, re when I tell some, when we sit down and read a think piece, I say, what do you know about the author from this? Because there are some authors who can trick you, and that's a good way to write, to trick you that you think you know a lot about them. Like, you would read this and be like, okay, this person's told me that he's fat, he's still DTF, and like, you know, <laughs> like, so there's things that you can garner, but there's also like, so there's this curtain that we employ as writers um, saying, how much of myself am I gonna show you? We do a little Gypsy Rose Lee act, right? And then, um, but there's also, so, and, and I do that in class too. Like every time I reveal something about myself to the class, I say the curtain, like I told you that, but like, what didn't I tell you? Right? Like I could tell you I'm type two diabetic, but like, did I tell you what my numbers were this morning? Like, did I tell you that I'm struggling with X, Y, Z? So every time you disclose, there's just as many things that you don't disclose. Mm -hmm. And so I, I try to make them super aware of like what they are putting on the page and what they're not, because every detail that you lay down is also a choice not to lay down certain details. And so it's like in crafting an essay, I'm also, crafting an essay and crafting a course are very similar, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I, I try to like be very upfront when I'm, when I'm doing that, I'm talking about the curtain. Um, have any of you had experiences where you've had to educate your students about queerness in the course of teaching your class? 
think so. It's not that I've had an educated feeling about queerness, is that my writing, so my writing, I write for a site called Into, and it's like very inside baseball, like I'm writing for queer people, by queer people, and like I use a lot of just like jargon that I'll hand to people, and they'll be like, what is a finsta? Like, what is a thirst trap? Like, what are you talking about? So like I hand them these essays, and they're like, I have no idea what half of these words are. And I'm like, okay, well, a thirst trap is like, like if you go to my Instagram right now, you'll see several. And it's like, <laughs> so that is, that's the only way I can say that. I've had to teach them a lot of like queer lingo. I've taught them queer history, actually. Um, one of the most beautiful, probably my top three favorite essays of all time is um, Californian. Richard Rodriguez, late Victorians, mm. and it's set in San Francisco, and it really traces, um, it's a collage essay, and he uses architecture as scaffolding to um, talk about what the architecture of San Francisco and the city was in the 70s and 80s um, as people disappeared, and he paints a picture of San Francisco, the colors of the Victorians, and the person painting his fence just disappeared one day. And then he puts the obits, he inserts, he injects the obituary, the obits, it, within the essay as scaffolding to the essay. So um, it is like one of the most beautiful essays of all time. Yeah. Um, and so like the history of queerness and how, um, and just the complexity of queerness in that essay, it addresses so many different things like, um, like, the, like the financial jealousy. And as a sex worker, this is interesting to me um, because um, like they were, you know, painting, die faggots on, on buildings. And um, a lot of the jealousy had to do with the, the, the family and the Victorian, the actual structure of the Victorian and how it's laid out for the specific kind of family, how queerness stood in opposition to that and how jealous they were of these uh, men who had double income and they were having their own family in this Victorian house. It's just, it is so gorgeous and so complex. Um, and it, uh, it's just so revolutionary. And then they, I've written an essay recently about activism for Bustle, and I talk about ACT UP and mm -hmm. ACT UP San Francisco. And mm -hmm. these are stories that are, these are vestiges of stories quickly disappearing from our landscape. I mean, there is no ACT UP San Francisco, but I was there. And like those stories are important now. And, and it is like one of the most interesting things that's ever happened culturally in San Francisco, particularly the way San Francisco looks today as opposed to then. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, yeah. I, I like <laughs> highlighting that voice. Like I feel like turning up the volume mm -hmm. on that voice is super important right now because there is just no indication that that even existed unless those of us write stories and have pictures from that time. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that these, these histories are new to all of your students regardless of their background or are there students in the, in the room who what I'm asking is like do straight people know about this no no not really and do your young queer people know about it no not so much they love they're very open to it though I mean Seth one thing we were talking about when we were having a discussion um, that I wanted to like talk about was that like the teaching readers how to read what the author's trying to say and mm -hmm. I know you said it way smarter than that but um, it's, it's, we're teaching them how to read, like teaching writers how to read, mm -hmm. basically mm -hmm. read as a writer right. and what the author is trying to do. And it's just like what we're trying to do is like revisit these times. And so, I mean, they may or may not know tiny things, but seeing like Richard Rodriguez and experiencing the essay, just it's an experience. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so even if they knew someone who was gay or whatever in the 80s, like just that experience of that essay, it just gives you such a, it's such a palpable feeling. Visceral. Visceral. I, yeah. I have I had a very, very, very straight student. Um, <laughs> Militantly straight. <laughs> he, he was. He was great. There was a little. There was a lot of not not really getting it going on. And I had a couple of um, a couple of, of queer um, people in the class, and I had them read. And there was a little bit of tension there. And I had them read Alex Cheese Girl, which is mm. from the same era. Um, it's, a, it's a really brilliant essay. And he came in, this very, very straight guy, came in the next, um, the next class and he said, I was reading that to my girlfriend and I just started bawling. Mm -hmm. And like after he yeah. said all of that, the whole class just opened right up. So mm -hmm. I think reading is really, yeah. I think you're, you're spot on. That's, that's the ticket to this. You can you can only lecture so much, but reading, reading. can do yeah. a lot. Is the pedagogical tool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to add to what you're talking about with history. So one of the things that I did in my first class was, so I said I, I had assigned something I wrote, and it was something I wrote about sexual racism. And alongside it, I assigned um, a piece that was in Out Weekly in 1991 by Robert Vasquez Pacheco um, that's called No Longer Sleeping with the Enemy. And it's about, it's the first piece about sexual racism kind of in the community. And I'm kind of like, listen, like there's a lot, of, you'll feel a lot of pressure as a writer to be like, oh man, I gotta say something new. And it's like, you're not gonna say anything. It's like, I don't say like, you're not gonna say anything new, but like you might say something that's been said for, for, from your own life perspective. Like you'll be able to bring your experiences to it, but like take the pressure off of you, but also recognize like who came before you. Like I might write about sexual racism now, but I also know that like 25 years ago, someone wrote about it the first time so that I could write about it now. And it's like interesting to see Robert Vasquez mm -hmm. writing about it in 1991 and talking about what it meant then, pre-Grinder, pre, -grinder, pre mm -hmm. like the readily availability of like hooking up on Craigslist and stuff like that, and how then that magnified in a lot of ways what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. So I do try to think about like putting yourself as a writer on a timeline, yep. right? Whether if you're talking about religion, like you're, you can be like, okay, there was. Thomas Aquinas, and now there's you, <laughs> and like you're talking about, you know, you're talking about the same shit, but uh -huh. yeah, yeah, different lens, yeah. lenses that change, and yeah. I think it's interesting to think about people being eager to be the first when we're at a moment where we're um, we're so embarrassed that there still are firsts, mm -hmm. uh, particularly for like Sandra O oh being nominated for Best Actress Emmy mm -hmm. uh, as the first Asian American mm -hmm. woman mm -hmm. to receive that that honor. Um, and, and on the flip side, Sam Smith declaring that he, he was the first. may have been the first gay mm. person to win an Oscar, um, when that should really be not something to celebrate, but something to be like, thank God that's over. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just did that thing where I made a comment, not a question. We want to hear from you. We do. <laughs> We need. We also. I was at. A, I was at a panel yesterday, and we were talking about breaking down the politics of the panel, <laughs> and how there's like rules on how a panel operates, and mm -hmm. that we also need to break down break the idea down. that like we have knowledge and we like capitalistically imbue it to you. So like, if you want to say things, yeah, break the rules of fucking panels. Well, I mean, that's why he wanted us to ha just talk to each other. Yeah. Yeah, I want this to be a, an observed conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, so uh, I'm well, actually. I will say something. No, I, something I will say. Um, I think I'm the only fiction writer on this panel. Is that right? No. no, 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 no. We, we both. So you do. Yeah. Um, but 
um, the reason I teach Best American Short Story is, is because I really, um, I want them to get uh, a sense of the voices today. Right? I really want them mm -hmm. to read, like these, are, these were just published in the last year. You know? <laughs> I say, and I say to, to myself, these are your peers. These are people writing in your time right now. And these are, you know, mm -hmm. you know and, and, look, and, and look at this, you know, the variety of voices out there. I mean, Chimamanda Ngozi was, was one of the writers, one, you, know, you know, one year. Um, and um, an international set. It's, uh, it's almost so international, I'm thinking, why do they call it Best American Short Stories? But, you know, it's, it's the, I guess, I, I try to get them um, wherever they are, whatever their culture is, and their sexuality, is that um, you are writing right now for today, you know, and whatever those aspects are, mm -hmm. you know, so, so to please um, come out. And I, I will say, you know, as far as, like, Chris students, I've had, for whatever reason, I've had more lesbian students than I've had actually, you know, awesome. gay men. Yeah, I've had, mm -hmm. it, it's, it was interesting. I was thinking, uh, because of this film, I'm like, gosh, I've had really more lesbian students, really. You have them read Eileen Miles? You know, um, mm -hmm. I haven't had them read, uh, read Eileen Miles, um, because that's the, 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 the bass, bass is the only one I, I, I have them read. Mm -hmm. I asked them to please read other things, so please bring, bring it back to me, mm -hmm. you know, but um, I encourage them to uh, say whatever it is they need to say, and I, I try to say that as encouragingly as possible, particularly for the queer students to come out and say, you know, say whatever you want to say. You know, it's all safe here. And I think that issue of safety is something I really say. Mm -hmm. You can say whatever you want. We respect each other right here, right now, all the time, mm -hmm. you know, um, so that um, so that people, you know, people of color can say whatever they need to say. You know, women can say whatever, that, you know, they need to say. Queer people can certainly say whatever they, they need to say, you know, and I think that, um, um, what I try to try to do with, with my classes is is to value all the voices, including the conservative ones. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are the things that you know that you if you please feel and, and I've had conservative students you know say stuff and um, I, it's when they're it's I don't know if you do this but it's when they comment on other students' work mm -hmm. that I get yeah. really and in, in writing too because yeah. I say please take this writing home you know bring back the comments you know. You know that 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 I try I try to I try my best to say these are certain this is how you try to say something <laughs> okay right. try to say it this way don't say because I've also been in extension it wasn't a queer class but someone and I couldn't believe and the teacher no longer works there where a student said this is the worst book I've ever read oh, no. they actually said this in class at yeah. an extension class and I thought I can't believe. And no one stopped the student. The student just mm. railing. I'm thinking whether the uh, queer, straight people, whatever it is, to say that, and for the for the teacher to allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. And I, I even say that I say that story. You guys, I've been in extension where this actually happened. So I said, if I ever teach extension, this will never happen mm -hmm. in one of my classes mm -hmm. ever. Yeah, I don't <laughs> let them say that they liked it or didn't like it because mm -hmm. I don't yeah. care. That's not why we're there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, if I've assigned it, I've done it because there's merit, and that's not a craft. Ta saying you liked it or didn't like it is not a craft. Um, it's not talking about craft in mm -hmm. writing. Um, and a, a lot of the things that I assign are my peers, like Cheryl Strayed, love of my life. That's just something that is in every class. And I don't want them to say, I hate Cheryl Strayed or I hate this essay. It's like, right. I don't care. And that's not what we're talking about. Like, we're talking about the craft and yeah. voice the and tension and, and um, you know, the essay and what the author is doing. Like, mm -hmm. how are they, how is the author teaching us how are th what are they doing? What are they performing mm -hmm. on the page, and why are they making this choice? And 
Like that's what we talk about. You do the same thing, right? Yeah, I, I give them a, lo a list of craft terms, if, especially if it's a new workshop and they've never, many of them haven't workshop before. And I say, okay, we're gonna talk about what you like first, but you have to use these words. Mm, um, you, can't, <laughs> you can't just say, I liked it. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and you start with what they, the positive stuff and get them using those terms and then move to the yeah. constructive criticism. Yeah, and my, be my, kind, yeah. sorry. No, 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 no. My, my only version of that is that because I teach think pieces and that there's usually, I mean, not a lot, all writing kind of has an argument behind it, but it, because it is trying to, in a short amount of time, in an economic amount of time, make an argument, I ask them, did they persuade you? That's all I asked them, like, did they mm. persuade you? But mm. it's interesting, so in my first class that I taught, I had an older bisexual man who was married to a man, and he was in his late 50s, early 60s, and he, um, I had them read a piece by Kenyon Farrow called Is Gay Marriage Anti-Black? And it was like about a black gay man talking about like how the, all the rhetoric around ma marriage equality pits mm -hmm. the black community, specifically like conservative Christians, mm -hmm. saying like black people shouldn't be on board with marriage equality because you have more in, in common with us mm -hmm. than with like those gays. Like you're actually really conservative. And like mm -hmm. having him think through those things was really rewarding because he had never mm -hmm. like been exposed to something like that saying like, you know, when you talk to a lot of older gay white men about marriage equality, they would never think of it as ever having had a negative effect on anything, mm -hmm. you know? And so, and, and, and that segues into, I'm not gonna say that I like my queer students more, but I am gonna say that I think it's, it's very rewarding when you give a queer person the tools to tell their story. It feels very rewarding on like a basic level. Mm -hmm because like you were talking about having conservative students, like if I gave like Barry Weiss the tools to write, I'd be like fucking pissed. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but, like yeah. when I give like a little queer baby, like the, the tools mm -hmm. to talk about something that they've never articulated, it's mm -hmm. so amazing. Yeah. Like when you see them finally get to, you know, like in my class, I had an, an Asian woman talking about like BDSM and power dynamics mm -hmm. and how East Asian women are not are like not usually represented in the BDSM community mm -hmm. and she wrote about it for the first time and then I had another queer Asian person writing about like MRA Asians, like pe pe Asians who are men's rights activists mm -hmm. and it was just like so interesting. Um, and so I, it's just like it's gratifying on a level. So one thing I do in my class is that every class, everything, well not everything we read but like the, the main reading for the week we go through it paragraph by paragraph and I have them say like, what are they doing in this paragraph? And mm -hmm. I give them like seven or eight options. It's like, is it a scene? Is it dialogue? Mm -hmm. Is it commentary? Is it, uh, is it interiority? Like, what is it? Just label it. Mm -hmm. And then, because I say like, whenever you read like the late Victorians, you think, oh, this person is like doing an Olympic floor routine. And at the end, they like put their hands up and they're like, I did it. Yeah. But like when you break down an Olympic floor routine, it's just like a step here and uh -huh. then a step there. I'll be studying that essay for the rest of my life. Right, yeah. right. It is so incredibly complex. And Joanne Beard, The Fourth State of Matter. Yeah. It's like, what is, Fourth State, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Fourth State of Matter. Um, just, I'm always gonna be studying that essay. 100%. Because it's just, it's so complex and it's such a choreography. Right. But that's what I love about it. And if someone, or I think the metaphor I used when I taught it was like building a roller coaster. Like I would never know like how to build a roller coaster, coaster and yeah. you don't know how writers do their loops, but like a loop is just like a mm -hmm. straightforward piece of track that mm -hmm. like, and once you break it down, it's easy to see mm -hmm. what they're doing and mm -hmm. you can say, okay, 
if I want to write an essay, maybe if mm. I just write it in that order, I'll come to something like this. <laughs> or, you know, yeah, that you I can know, at least so say hard. you can emulate that by saying like, okay, you would know that the writer has these eight tools at hand. It's all, it's kind of like when you say so you're singing, like when you're singing, it all comes down to 12 notes and a certain, and they're just in all in order. different octaves. But there know? is also a certain magic that you, mm. it's that thing I can't explain. Um, you can reverse yeah. engineer an, an essay like Fourth State of Matter yeah. your whole life, but there is a certain magic that I can't explain yeah, how it works, and I can't do it. Right. Like, I can't do the Fourth State of Matter. Well, the same, like, I have the same thing with Brownies by ZZ Packer. I have spent yeah. so much of my life trying to figure that short story out. But <laughs> it's, I mean, in in the editing classes, actually, what we, what we do is um, we take a book that um, a writer, I have a bunch of books that writers have sent me that they just can't get anywhere with. And some of them are like New York Times bestselling authors. Some of them are students, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And, um, and the students choose one of the books and we take the book apart using a, uh, a story map. Um, and each student takes like three chapters and mm-hmm. we take the whole book apart and then we meet with the author before and after. And it's a really cool mm-hmm. way. And most authors have not done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that always surprises me because I'm, OCD about these things, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, that you know, but it's it is a really mm-hmm. you know it's a, a great tool trying to take a story apart and figure out how it works, and that's uh-huh. I think what we need to teach people. Yeah. I'm doing that. Yeah. Y'all, that was an amazing role that you were on. Just saying. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> well, because there's the consciousness that rises within a piece. It's consciousness, mm-hmm. and like, how do right. you teach consciousness? And you can't really, but you can like, you can get a whiff of the eternal and you can get a whiff of it by reading an essay. And like, you can't teach that, right. but you can sense it and you can like cook with those tools. You can, mm-hmm. you can get in the kitchen and cook with those tools and you yeah. can cook with their ingredients. Um, on that note, like we're in a, we're in a conversation with writers every day, all the time, online, on Twitter right now, like reading their books, reading essays and like. I have a certain love affair with certain writers, and I read Lorelai Lee's um, Once You Have Made Pornography, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous essay on the establishment. It's um, second-person POV. And so I wrote my own second-person POV essay on the establishment called Your Life as a Middle-Aged Stripper. And so it's kind of like I was just like meeting her and like having a, com- like having a love affair with that essay. Mm-hmm. And I like to do that. It's like my way of kind of just like dancing with other authors and just like, I'm gonna do that too, and like I also have like a weird relationship with second person POV. I love second person. <laughs> we really are yeah. just grouping we are. here. We're groupies. I fell in love with second person yeah, by reading Lori Moore. Oh, and really? Tried, Which yeah, Lori Moore? She does second person. Self help. The yeah, book self-help. with the story self help. Mm-hmm. I read it and then like I for it was like for a year I could only write in second person. I was right. Like, I just want to what about Rob Roberge, liar? I haven't read it. It's so good. It's a bipolar. It's a memoir of bipolar, completely second person. Um, and you're never confused, but he goes everywhere all the time. It's a bipolar book, like, and you're just in second person, just like, no, he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> One of the stories that you suggest, I said, read How to Be an Other Woman. By oh, yeah. Lord. Oh, by Lori Moore, uh, yeah, that's I the says, one. Everyone should read that. I said, you, have, I said, you, you have to read. When I, we talked Moore about point of view. I know, right? Yeah, I just whatever. like, you have to read the short story. You have to read yep. the, the That is a collection. How to Be Another Woman is amazing. How to Be the Other Woman. Yeah. Well, y'all seamlessly transitioned to our last question me asking it so why am I still here but the question was who are your who have your teachers been oh my so gosh. these are some great examples that you've given who are some others that you think particularly your queer students should should read uh, well my I mean 
my literal queer teacher, the, the woman who got me writing again. I didn't write for until I was 27 from when I was like 19 because I had a horrible teacher who told me to stop and I listened to her. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> but um, I, uh, I took a writing workshop with Minnie Bruce Pratt, um, mm. who's a really really great creative nonfiction writer and poet. Um, and she has a, a poem called, I think it's called Letter to My Young Sons, which, um, mm. you know, really transformed me. Um, and she was also just a phenomenal teacher. Um, and I'll never forget what she said on the first day of class. She said, I'm going to be asking you to write down things about your life that are true and that are painful. When you write them down, they have a power, and that power can hurt you, but that power can also change the world. Mm -hmm. um, and that's your choice to make. And I was just like, what? Um, yeah. Because I was a political science PhD mm -hmm. student, and I was miserable, and I was running regression analyses all day, and I was like, what am I doing? And, um, and she, is, she, she is probably one of my favorite queer writers of all time. So I'll just I'll, I'll go with her. Mm -hmm. um, well, to, to piggyback on that, I would say, like it's the Adrian Rich quote mm. of um, that our power, our greatest power, comes from our wounds, and um, and to write through that suffering. But what I've, the teachers that I've learned from aren't necessarily queer. Um, I've stolen everything from <laughs> Pam Houston, Steve Allman, and Cheryl Strayed. Like I've just stolen everything from them. They know it, um, but those are the teachers that, and Robert Barish. They've taught me how to teach, and just I've stolen everything from them. They're incredible. Um, but I think that we learn from, if reading is my greatest tool, and I think it is, I would say Eileen Miles, Cool For You, mm -hmm. uh, which is fiction, but she's um, butch and queer, and she's a genius, and she's a poet. And um, Michelle T mm -hmm. is a wonderful queer writer. Um, and um, this bookstore has supported both those writers. They've had their launches yeah. here. So Fantastic. <laughs> um, Tina Horn. I would also go online and read mm. everything he, by Tina Horn and Laura Lee. And... Um, I love like who's writing right now, like Jessica Valenti, and writes, mm -hmm. writes about sexuality and feminism, and the, Roxane Gay, you know, mm -hmm. is writing powerful stuff right now. Jill Soloway has a book out right now called um, She Wants It, and it's about how she, her journey through having a transparent and that TV show, and also coming out as they, and her butch identity, and becoming queer, and ending a hetero marriage, and raising children, and that actually is a really inspiring book. I think it comes out like next week. But um, yeah. I would also say Roxane Gay, also because one of the things that I talk about in my class is that, you know, so, or, or Philip Lopate says, um, to quote a white man, <laughs> or like, you know, he talks about essays as attempts. And like, I always tell my students, it's like, yeah, you, you, you have such a, once again, like a, you feel like you need to just nail it. And sometimes I like, I mean, I teach think pieces. Like I really cherish pieces that try something, even if they're not totally successful. Mm -hmm. And I think that you can learn a lot from a think piece that you click on Facebook and you're like, okay, why mm -hmm. wasn't I on board? Like I, I agree with the headline or I agree with what they're saying in the first few paragraphs and then they just like lose the thread. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's so much value in like that messiness and I think that Roxane Gay, she's like kind of untouchable in, in like American literature right now. But I think that like a lot of her stuff that you read from like the Rumpus is very messy, mm -hmm. but messy in the best way because she's mm -hmm. always attempting something, 
and it may not always end well or she may not like you don't see where th there's gaps sometimes but mm -hmm. i think that there's so much to learn from reading that yeah, definitely and i just think there's never but there's never anything empty there are some people who just like you read 800 of their words and you're like okay that could have been a tweet yeah and <laughs> it's never that way with dark Sanders. Right. she's always attempting something if you so. ever feel that way about my work it's because they're paying me <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I mean, I've definitely written like tweet tweet storms yeah. that were just, that was like, well, gotta make a check somehow. But um, and then so my greatest teacher, who probably unlocked like a lot of the write that the writing that I want to do is Kate Bolick, um, who wrote an amazing book called Spinster, um, huh. making a life of one's own, and it is about it's a memoir about her unmarried life and just like the, her not dealing with the pressures to be married. Um, as a straight presenting, but I think she actually, does, she, well, I know, she doesn't know if it's clear, but she's straight presenting, and like, has mostly dated men. Um, the pressures to be married and stuff like that, and, and it was the first time that I saw someone's writing that I wanted to, mine to, to be like, or like, because she also does a lot of research, so she talks about five writers who also kind of bucked the like, traditional ideas of marriage, and she calls them her awakeners, and every time, mm. I email with her, I always remind her that she was like one of my awakeners and stuff like that. So she taught me when I was at NYU. And so mm -hmm. she also, in seeing her, had like she modeled how to teach, and then I brought a lot of how she taught to teaching. Nice. So. I love that. There are too many writers to name, but I will say that two men, and I've actually said this to them, I said, if there are two, if there was a life I'd like to have, um, because I thought they've handled their lives really, really well. I said, Bernard Cooper and Arms at Milpan. I said that mm. those two men have lived a life of dignity and grace, I think, in their literary lives um, and, and in their work. That, you know, that they were that generation of, of people who had seemed like the worst of, of AIDS and HIV, and Arms at Milpan began writing trans characters like way before like anybody was like even talking about, you know, and so. Um, um, there are a lot of writers who write really, really well, um, but I guess at this particular point in my life, because I've turned 50, I'm, mm. I'm trying to model my life around people who led really great literary lives. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in my opinion, I, I look at someone like Brad Cooper and I look at someone like Amos at Milpan, and this is, you know, they, they're aging in a way that I really wish I could age. <laughs> you know? So I really appreciate them. I think you're doing Oh, I think he's amazing. Yeah. I think he's an incredible a writer and artist. He's yeah, exactly yeah. that whole that 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 whole makeup of writer is just really really incredible to me. Um, and something I will say why I think queer writing is really important now is um, I think that we. Whether, whether it's AIDS or drugs or suicide, is that we've lost so many incredible mm -hmm. queer writers. I mean, really so much. David Anson mm -hmm. in his book wrote this incredible essay about um, one of the reasons, he wrote this like, I think 10 or 15 years ago, but it's still true today. It's like one of the reasons why we don't have a lot of great art right now, why we're we constantly are keep remaking the same things over and over and over and over again is because yeah. This, this generation of queer people had died, you know, the innovation of talent that had, had just gone away. You know, um, someone like Michael Bennett, who um, who created the co a chorus line in Dreamgirls, right? <laughs> I mean, he, gone, you know? And um, uh, and so we're sort of in this loop of, of, of trying to create our own voices now as, this new, mm -hmm. this, as another generation of, of, of queer.
were people trying to say, write, write as much as you can, keep writing. And that's how when we, I started to write in the early 90s, an African-American lesbian writer, Ivan Nikolayan, really suggested to us, and the politics, uh, politics of the time, is that we are dying and they're gonna erase our stories. Mm -hmm. You should write yours, mm -hmm. you know. And um, unfortunately, she passed away not too long ago, but you know, I guess when it comes to our mentors, is that um, this generation of people who did it before, well, I want to give um, our guests a chance to pose any questions they have for the panel. teaching them how to deal with other people's work as care, which is what you mm -hmm. all do as teachers. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe you can all talk about that just a little, like how we teach like writers, how to have that care for their work and, and other mm -hmm. people's Well, I mean, in editing, that's one of the biggest challenges when people have to look at the manuscripts um, and they're choosing them, they're all so angry. Like, why aren't these perfect? It's like, well, that's <laughs> why you're here. <laughs> like, you're gonna learn how to pick. The, the hot, push, hot button issue was the book ended with the necrophilia scene. Um, it was a really, the book was beautiful, and then there was a out of nowhere necrophilia scene at the end, um, <laughs> which, you know. Does, does that ever come? <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, <laughs> it was. But um, but one of the things teaching editors and future editors is to humanize your writers. Like your writers are people, so I always have them meet with the writers before they fully write their editorial mm. letter to them, mm. and so mm. they have a face to the name, and they're not just saying, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, so that's, that's it. You know, humanizing the writer is really important from the editor's perspective. Mm -hmm. I'll let other people talk about writing. I'm not sure. Um, I, how do you teach people to care for other work? I mean, it's kindness, literally. I mean, yeah. it's a huge leading with kindness in any critique letter. Mm -hmm. I have a really outlined critique letter that answers, like, specific questions. Were there any human um, things at stake? Were you... Uh, did, were there any points in the manuscript where you felt there were human issues at stake, and if so, what? And that, it's a huge critique letter where I have them just question themselves. It's more about questioning oneself as they're looking at the work, um, and just kindness, leading with kindness, and also like writers often don't know what they do, what they're doing right, and so I always say, you know, choose some things, play to their strengths, and tell a writer what they're doing right and what was right. really strong and what danced on the page and what you know, what they noticed and what resonated with them and then go into other issues with the manuscript. I always think that helps. I worked with somebody for two years before I met her in person. Yeah. Um, and that's an interesting thing to, I like your idea of meeting the writer mm -hmm. first and then before critiquing. I think it's really easy to not like the big picture of something. Like if you're looking at a piece of art in an art gallery and you're like, oh, I hate it. Um, but it's hard not to respect the brushstrokes of something. Mm -hmm. Like when you really go down and you look at like how the 
painter is using paint or whatever, you know, and you see how they're using light. And so when we can do that with writing, when we can say like, okay, you may not like the 800 word beast, but you might appreciate its organs and what it, each part of it is trying to do. And when you can see what they were attempting, then you, but I think by looking at something under a magnifying glass, you automatic that is a, an act of caring for it, mm -hmm. like tending to it and keeping it alive and, and asking people to really dig into what a writer has to say is itself an act of care. Like I, for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I had attention, a, sustained attention. 100, 100%. Is, I mean, I, I was interviewing Garrett Connolly who wrote Boy Erased. I love him. I love it. I, we, well, so we had an interview no. where like, we became friends. He's like my bread love boyfriend. Oh my gosh, I have to tell him that I know you because we're emailing yeah, I now. I love him. Yeah, so like, we, we were talking and he was talking about how like, when he was making the movie, like, Lucas, he, saw, he met Lucas Hedges who played him and he had his book earmarked and he was like, as a writer, seeing your book earmarked is like, like and just like all these notes, he was like, oh my God, like mm -hmm. someone wrote in my book. Um, so it's like just, the act of reading and, and critical reading and, and really trying to parse through what someone is trying to say is is the act of care. Yeah, I believe that. I think it's love. Yeah. I mean, sustained attention is love. Yeah. Because in such a distracted world, especially. So it's an act of generosity too, to look at somebody's work so deeply. Most, well, all of my friends said the intro classes. So I said, don't even edit right now. <laughs> I said, do not. That's the last thing you should be doing right now. It's like, do not edit yourself. Do not, you know, just to get yeah, them yeah. to like start to, to write and speak is, mm -hmm. is like, then at the end of the class, I says, okay. And then I says, okay, the editing process. Just know it's a different thing. It's a totally different head, depending who you are. But I don't even get into the editing portion. That's interesting. Yeah. I had one week where I made my students edit because, I mean, I think that a lot of people think online writing is cheap, and I was like, I've had to write things in like two hours, yeah. and that's just life. It's but insane. Yeah, but I was like, when you have the time to go over your work and actually find what you're trying to say, like, it's, you, it's confronting yourself in a way, because, mm -hmm. I mean, especially I had them look at things like two weeks later, and I was like, take your name off the page. Like, just pretend it's someone else's, like, and, and, and really try to ask yourself the questions that you would ask of any other writer. What is this person trying to say mm -hmm. and get to that? And, and it's just one week that I asked them to like go back over something. And it's, it's it, because we, you have to, if we're gonna give all this critical attention and care to other people, like do that to your own work too, right? Mm -hmm. Like pour over it. <laughs> And ask. You're making me want to die right now. <laughs> <laughs> just because, like, writing for publication, they're just like, we need this tomorrow. I'm like, no, give me two days. And it's just like, you re I, I always want that time. Like, I want more time. And just because something's published doesn't mean it's good. Like, I, need, oh, I, yeah. I wish I could go right. back. There was I a, just want to, well, like, no, no. There's some essay I need where, more time. There's some essay where it. Michael Can Cunningham talks about, like, going into a Barnes Noble and picking up the hours and, like, crossing out words and oh changing them. Oh, my God. I, that's, I, yeah. I, I, I would, <laughs> you just want to go I and be like, I would rewrite this 10 times. <laughs> yeah. It's, just like, it's so horrible. And they're like, who crossed out all this? <laughs> <laughs> right, and you're like, um, it was Michael Cunningham. <laughs> that's the book that he got. I feel that way about every essay that's ever been published of mine. I just, like, want to rewrite it 100,000 times. It's so awful. Don't you feel that way? I, I, yeah, I had, a, I had a short story that <laughs> that I published, and the next day, um, or I think it was the next day or two days later, I was talking to Rob, mm -hmm. and in the Robert. short story, like Rob Robert, um, I, I, the, a dog got killed, and he said, good, you've had your dog 
you can't kill another dog for the rest of your life. And I was like, oh, that was kind of a cheap move. And I, <laughs> but also, like, didn't Raymond Carver, like, write a whole book that was, like, rewriting his stories without Gordon Lish? It's like, you can always yeah. write them again. <laughs> you really can't. I mean, yeah. if you're a Raymond Carver, but you can also write them for yourself. I think we've reached time. So I want to thank you all for being here. Thank the panelists. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.